You are now entering the world of Musings of a Geek Podcast Network. Stay geeky, my friends. going on 14 i am patrick i'm joel and i'm josh and mike's gone but i have it on good authority he's coming back after all he drank a bunch of beers took off his shirt erotically and distinctly said i'll be right back (laughs) (laughs) just like daddy did when i was five (laughs) (laughs) so yeah it's just the three of us uh for the show our our Um, intrepid leader mike is not going to be with us tonight he is off uh i don't know squeezing hobos for liquor or something Hmm. <laughs> for that hobo juice. It's delicious. Uh, welcome to the show. This uh, this week we're covering uh, Carrie, the um, original 1976, and the what was it, 2013? 2000. That's a thing. Yeah, yes. they're all gonna laugh at you. <laughs> yes. Uh, but first, um, want to welcome everybody that's listening to us through uh, Musings of a Geek Network um, or the Geek Life Radio. Uh, what, is that the one? That's the one that's at Saturdays at noon, correct? Yes, sir. That is correct. Right. And we've got a few new shows uh, on Musings of a Geek, including a show from Ireland. Ireland? Yeah. Uh, Geek Ire, I believe they're called. I, I'm probably totally screwing up the name of their show, but they just joined this week. Oh, I thought called they were Jamaican. Potatoes, I'm sure. I thought it was Jamaican. I thought it was Ireman. <laughs> I guess I mispronounced it. Irie, 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 Irie. I don't know. My Jamaican is off. I'm not. Kara, you know. <laughs> it's been yeah, years since probably... I've, been, I've spoken fluent Jamaican. <laughs> I believe that they're probably more of an anime cast than some of the other shows on the network. But uh, I'd like to officially welcome them to uh, Musings of a Geek Podcast Network. Yes, I can make fun of Irish because I'm uh, I, I know an Irish guy once. So. <laughs> Yeah, that's not how it that, works. that'd be me. Yeah, <laughs> and me, I'm half Irish. So. Yes. All right, moving on. Um, you can find us also if you're looking for us. You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, Talkshoe, Blueberry. Uh, that's the one that has the referral code, correct? Uh, mm-hmm. Yep. You, yeah. If you want to start a podcast, yeah. use Forty Go Fourteen. That's our referral code, and we all get free stuff. It's good. They get a free month <laughs> of hosting. Yeah, there you go. Everyone gets free yep. stuff. There you go. Everybody, we're all gonna get laid. <laughs> or you can reach us at 708 now wrap that's 708-669-9727 leave us some voicemails let us know what you're thinking about the show what you, if you have opinions on anything so we can make fun of you and banter back and forth you know who doesn't have opinions I on have. things pat uh, me no i have no opinions they're all facts <laughs> <laughs> I, that's one of my favorite things and my, my one of my best friends chris just hates that so much <laughs> Uh, uh, I hope you gave credit where it was due. <laughs> no. <laughs> You're in a whole other state. I, it's down here, it's mine. 
that's a whole other country down there. Anyway, yep. how, do they, how else can they get us, Josh? So, so, yeah. so do we have voicemails? Speaking of our phone number. Yes, we do. Uh, if you'd like to leave us one of those voicemails, uh, you can always reach us at 708-NOW-RAP. That's 708-669-9727. If you want to check out the shows, uh, you uh, Pat already told you how to do that. <laughs> what about email? <laughs> we should go oh, back email in the conversation. 40go14 at gmail.com, and you can always tweet us at at 40go14. All right, we do have some listener feedback this week. We have a lot First of ways. Up, we have a lot of ways to get in touch with us. Like, yeah, people it's good. can't find us. They got you know, they're not looking hard. And physically, also true. Yes. yes. Sorry, voicemails. Also, oh. physically hard. <laughs> Whoa, yes. got it. Hey, hey now. Hey. Okay. First up, uh, let's let's play this one. Hi guys, this is listener. Just calling in. My. Uh, Airbud broke a uh, couple weeks ago, so I'm still behind. Just catching up to this one now, Fright Night, and uh, fuck, you already called me out. We'll see if you get another fucking voicemail this week. <laughs> so go ahead and play the second voicemail. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Yeah, so I guess we did, because, uh, but, uh, yeah. Obviously, th- there's an empty this threat. Is... <laughs> hey, bust to the front. <laughs> That's it. We did forget the bust to the front, so we had to call back. Yep, absolutely. Yeah, we're glad to hear from him. Definitely. You. I'm glad he's finally caught up. He's been behind for a while, I think. Yeah, we hadn't heard from him in like two or three episodes, so glad glad to hear him again. Uh, I've also got another one from Nikki. Oh, yay. Our favorite New Zealander. So listen closely, and here we go. I heard my name, so I'm calling. What's up? Question. They tend to be like pretty much any old movie, whether it's actually good or crap. They haven't remade Commando yet. What does it say about Commando? I'll leave that up to you. Uh, bye. I might need a so translator was... because, but I know she said something bad about Commando, and that makes no. me upset. No, she she addressed you directly. She said, "Question for Pat." All right. They tend to make movie remake movies, whether they're excellent, good, or bad. Uh, but they don't remake Commando. What does that say about Commando? It so says it was it was perfect and doesn't need to be remade. That's it. I mean, would, why would you you know when you don't remake the Mona Lisa, you don't remake the Leaning Tower? People, well, bad bad example on that one. Um, well, perfection. Well, yeah, Patrick. This just in. Patrick says Commando is like the Leaning Tower of Pizza. <laughs> Case in point, Patrick. Gone with the wind. Exactly. Uh, there you go. Boom. They haven't remade that. They haven't remade Casablanca yet. Boom. They Same. haven't remade. Yeah, see, so uh, apparently Patrick is saying never made the Godfather or Citizen Kane. That Commando is <laughs> that, those, are, those are all in the same canon, as far as I'm concerned. I'll shoot you out of canon. <laughs> I'm gonna have to politely disagree with you. <laughs> those, are, those are all like you know elite movies. I know I'm feeding this, but I disagree with it entirely. <laughs> oh, they'll, they'll do it. Ray Chong is point. an underrated actress. I, yeah, I'm with you on that. I think that's true. That maybe not for her uh, role in Commando. What? Uh, sorry, there there's some places you will go where I cannot follow, <laughs> and most of them involve men being springboarded into the air with. <laughs> I mean, she delivered the classic line. Oh, that's all I need is all this macho bullshit. <laughs> Time for you to let up some steam. <laughs> I mean, if they remake it, it'll be with like the Rock will be in the lead, and they'll make it funny. Um, I'm actually a little surprised that hasn't happened. Right, like they'll they'll do a little more tongue in cheek with it. Like they'll actually intentionally show the flipboards this time. No, and they will. 
they will not remake the best movie of all time. And instead of Alyssa Milano, they'll have like, well, she'll be in it as a role, but not as the character. What are they going to do? Remake Breaking Bad next? The TV show? Yeah. What? Why would they remake a TV show that just ended this last year? Well, I'm just saying they don't. You know, you don't. I you guess. Don't, I mean, don't it, remake it, perfection. They could redo it overseas because, like, they're doing it. I think I'm overselling. I think I might be overselling Commando. You think? <laughs> just, a, just a hair, maybe. I do like that movie. That's okay. Thank you for calling in, Nikki. Yeah. I, um, I'm i not sure if you were insulting Commando or not, but if you were, <laughs> I take issue. If he ever figures it out, he's going to be really mad. I take issue and umbrage if you're insulting it, but if you're on my side, then good on you. Well, Pat, bless your heart. Bless Thank your heart, you. Pat. Thank you, Grandma. <laughs> no, that's a southern insult. Bless your little heart. Is it? No, it's not. Basically calling you an idiot. Anyway. Not, oh, All right. Is it about that yeah, time, gentlemen? It is definitely about that time. All right. This week in music, movies, and TV. All right. An abrupt ending? Was. <laughs> yeah. I, I may have converted that uh, while you, we were talking about Commando. <laughs> So this weekend we're doing 1976, which was the release of the first Carrie. And Josh, you want to take away the music section? Well, yeah. I mean, music starts off with a uh, PTFM, which is obviously "Paint That Fucking Mountain" <laughs> by Wild. Jerry. See, I thought it was "Put the Fucking Monkey." <laughs> That's what I thought it was. Play that funky music. <laughs> Bob Ross's oh. band, "Paint That Fucking Mountain." <laughs> joke coming on uh, uh followed by a fifth of beethoven by walter murphy and the big apple band i just thought that was fun of a on name o- to leave out yeah <laughs> on october 2nd joe cocker performed a duet of feeling all right with himself what? as portrayed by john belushi on snl one of the funniest things that you'll ever see if you like if you're a joe cocker fan you've got to look it up if you haven't seen it yeah i've never seen that I, i'm gonna need to look that Man, up tonight it's, it's funny also, on October 8th, the major record label EMI signed the Sex Pistols to a two-year contract, leading to the band's first single, Anarchy in the UK, being released on the 26th of November. Do you remember? Anyway, uh, movies. The Front, starring Woody Allen, but not directed by him, is number one at the box office. Octo- on October 4th, actress Alicia Silverstone is born. That's leading so, to a terrible chain of events, which you got as Batman and Robin. Oh, it's not her true. fault. Oh, well. But we got clueless out of it. You can't blame her. For okay, I'm glad someone was there with <laughs> you me. You can't blame that. her for that. And, and excess baggage, baggage wasn't terrible with Benicio del Toro. It was fun. Uh, with the front at number one, I wonder where Rocky was at this point. Because I know that 76 Rocky was the uh, best hmm, picture. It shouldn't take me long to find that if you give me half a second. Sorry, no can do. And we're moving on. <laughs> In TV. <laughs> <laughs> you were saying oh are you taking tv yeah in tv uh on october 4th newly arrived from nbc barbara Walwa joins harry reasoner as co-anchor of the abc evening news uh the pair that's barbara walters of course uh has a note the pair have a noticeable lack of on-air chemistry and within two years reasoner would leave abc to return to cbs in 60 minutes 
And apparently this was a big week in news because on October 11th, Jane Pauley makes her debut on NBC's Today. And now you know far more about this than you needed to. And yeah, Cosby, I, couldn't, I couldn't find anything about what was the number one show. So, And Cosby was still working the comedy circuit. Yeah, exactly. So, so Cosby hadn't on. dominated yet, so I, I couldn't. I mean, I honestly could not find a list of the top shows. I don't know why. It was very odd. Wait, when was, was he was on I Spy, right? Yeah, back in the uh, 60s. That was the 60s, by the 70s. Oh, so he wasn't doing the comedy. That was 65, so to 68. So he was uh, he was a TV presence, but yeah, probably still doing comedy. Yeah. All right, sports. To, to answer your question from earlier, Josh, by the way, Rocky um, only had one week at number one. Whoa. Uh, December 5th, 1976. Un- okay, so we weren't quite there yet. Unlike Commando, which reigned supreme. Carrie, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Carrie was number one uh, November 21st, November 28th, and then December 5th, Rocky. Oh, okay, so the movie we're talking about was actually knocked out by yeah. Rocky. It's uh-huh. another. It's another one of those movies that reclaimed its number one in, a, in, you know, in, in its third week because it was number one, and then two minute warning knocked it off, and then it came back for two. Oh, minutes. the classic two minute warning. Yeah, never heard of it. I don't know what it is either. either. Right. Okay, let's go to sports. <laughs> on October 9th, <laughs> in cricket news, Peter Petherick takes a hat trick on his debut in the first wicket when New Zealand played Pak Javid. The same day was the test cricket debut of Javid Miandad of Pakistan, who scores 163 on the first day. Is that good? I, I have no yeah. idea. Like, I, the only word I understood that you just said was debut. <laughs> I understood Peter. You, yeah, you, you lost me about cricket news. I know New Zealand because Nikki's there, but what's Maybe a test she cricket? she tell us what, what all that means. Yes. Nikki, what the hell does that mean? Send us an email if you don't have money for a call because I know it's long distance. All right. And moving on to the main show, let's talk about uh, Carrie, the 1976 version. Uh, Plot synopsis, a young, abused, and timid 17-year-old girl discovers she has telekinesis and gets pushed to the limit on the night of her school's prom by a humiliating prank. Yeah, this was uh, directed by Brian De Palma, uh, based, of course, on the novel by Stephen King. It was actually the first of uh, Stephen King's novels to actually make it to a screenplay. Was it before Carrie or before Christine? Oh, yes. And it was well, it was actually his first published novel. I want to say it was the fourth book he'd ever written, but the first one that actually made it big. Right. Yeah. And it was the one that, that got him established as a name. Yeah. Yeah. And the screenplay was written by Lawrence D. Cohen. Of the Cohen so, brothers? Yeah. Oh, uh, if he had a brother, I suppose. <laughs> Joel and Ethan. Uh, he's best known for, in addition to Carrie, he also uh, wrote the It uh, miniseries in 1990. Oh. And then the Tommyknockers miniseries in 93. Okay, before I list the cast here, I just have to ask, because everybody keeps talking about it, and this is derailing for a second. Is the It miniseries really that good? No. No. It just, okay. Tim Curry was perfect. It was <laughs> Everything else, I was actually, everything else sucked. Pennywise was great. I was actually talking about this uh, with my wife earlier, and I think my big problem is it's not that it's bad. It's that the best part of the books are the stuff that is all about the kids getting to know each other. And because of time, even in the miniseries, it focused on only plot points that were relevant to the monster story. And that was kind of the weakest part of the book. So It was the thread that carried the uh, book, the horror story, but... Yeah. So it's it's kind of like he's in terms of like stand by me but without the clown. It's like well, good dialogue yeah. with coming of age kind of 
Yes, like if you were to cut all the horror stuff out, I actually think that uh, it is a better coming of age than Stand By Me, which was actually also written by Stephen King as The Body. See, and I've not read it, and I've only seen bits and pieces of the the TV series. So, but I keep hearing people say, "Oh my gosh, it's so good!" But I've never seen it, so I don't know. If you guys are more my Stephen King. I've only ever read The Running Man and uh, Eyes of the Dragon, so that's my Stephen King. Wow, you read some obscure ones. Yeah, no kidding. I mean, they're good, but uh, yeah. Yeah, I read See, I read The Running Man uh, back before anybody knew it was Stephen King. <laughs> yeah. See, but that's like one of my favorite. I, I that's one of my favorite Arnold movies. So. I just I wanted to read the book and I, I, I really enjoyed the book, but I just never had any interest in King overall. But anyway, so in the movie, we've got Sissy Spacek as Carrie, Piper Laurie as Margaret White, Amy Irving, a very young and adorable Amy Irving as Sue Snell, <laughs> William Cat later to become the greatest American hero as oh, good call. Tommy Ross. And he starred in the movie House, which we'll have to do at some point. Uh, it's a Mr. John Travolta over here as Billy Nolan. <laughs> okay, that was actually that pretty was, good. That was I the normally, best one, I think, so far. <laughs> I That sounded exactly like Sammy Davis Jr. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'm kidding. That was a good Travolta. <laughs> we could have dumped some blood on Carrie's head. <laughs> anyway, um, Nancy Allen as Chris Hardison, who later went on to become uh, Officer Murphy's... Uh, I can't think of her name all of a sudden. Robocop. Yep. Oh. Uh, Murphy, she, Murphy was Robocop, but she, his she partner. She was his partner, yeah. yeah. What's her name, though? I can't think of it. Uh, Ann Lewis. Thank you. Officer Lewis. That's right. Um, then you got Betty Buckley yep. as Miss Collins and not Ann Canfield, who Betty <laughs> Buckley is, was one of my one of my crushes when I was younger. Um, uh, PJ Souls, who's the scream queen. Most people think of her in terms of Halloween and, and totally, uh, who has since made a little bit of a comeback thanks to Rob Zombie and then Priscilla Pointer as Mrs. Snell. And did you notice a very very young Edie McClurg? Yes, yep. right? And a shower scene? What It the was heck? very creepy. <laughs> like what? Edie McClurg? <laughs> I also believe that uh Priscilla Pointer is actually Amy Irving's mother? Yes. Oh, really? Interesting trivia. Yeah. Method acting. Yep. Uh, method I'm going to have this yes. baby just 18 years later we can make this movie. And interesting, another side note. Speaking of Edie McClurg, who was in Ferris Bueller's Day Off, she's from Kansas City. Just, oh, just say, yeah, shut up, Pat. <laughs> she's a righteous dude. So, who's doing trivia? Uh, let's talk about some trivia since I've already kind of kicked off with some minor trivia. Uh, one of the things about well, let's before we move on from the cast, let's talk a little bit about Sissy SpaceX since I know that uh, oh, people have some strong opinions oh, about her. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Go ahead. Um, personally, I mean, I think she's okay as an actress, but she was especially good in this. Like, I understand why someone wouldn't like Sissy Spacek as an actress. She has this kind of gangly, awkward, almost alien look to her. And I think that that really kind of made Carrie the role she was born to play. Thank you. Because awkwardness and this sort of out of place, but not a hundred percent unattractive. She's not conventionally attractive, but when uh, they got her to the prom, they're able to, you could see uh, something of a prom queen somewhere in there, but she was much more believable as the girl who everybody hated and uh, pushed to the side because she was weird and believed weird things and talked in a weird way. Exactly. And that's where, you know, as we get further into this, we'll, I think we'll come back to, but I, yeah. I agree 100% because that was my biggest kind of drawback 
I mean, not that Chloe Moritz greats in the more recent one is is not unconventionally attractive in her own way, being you know a kid still, but you know what I mean. Um, sure. And Angela Bettis, who was in the 2002 version, which I watched, who is way older than she should have been for the time, but is not conventionally attractive, but is automatically kind of billed as a weirdo. So yeah, Sissy Spacek, I thought was perfect casting. Okay, Pat, say what you want to say now. <laughs> I didn't have anything to say. I agree with both of you. Yeah, I I actually liked her in this role. Well, who and was I, it that didn't like her? Mike. Mike doesn't like Sissy Spacek. Oh, so we're missing out on that. Yeah, because I mean, I don't, I don't have a problem. I really, I kind of, I just nothing her. I mean, honestly, I thought she was kind of cute. She was naked in the. Let's see. Uh, Mike's quote is annoying, whiny, and looks like someone spread wet newspapers over a skeleton. <laughs> yes, that's the comment I was looking for. Yes. <laughs> Uh, which I mean, granted in, in the seventies, it was a, a different time. And, and it seems like there was a lot of stars that, that kind of fit that mold. There was other Wait. ones that kind of fell in there. Right. That kind of, but Goldie, Goldie Hawn even back then was that, was that skinny. Right. And I think, but I think for this particular role, yeah. really, she still it, is. <laughs> it fit. Sorry. I mean, I think everybody in this movie, honestly was cast really, really well, better than the other two versions that I've watched. Um, I think that's fair. Although the only uh, performance I was a little disappointed in was John Travolta's. Yeah, but he was so he was still kind of early on in his career. So I mean, I think he was phoning it in a little bit, or he just didn't yeah. know any better yet. And it could have been some of the writing, but like uh, there was a few dimensions to both Sue and Tommy with their performances, especially without being precisely sure of their motivations. For Tommy until he gets to the prom, and for Sue until even later. Like, until the moment before the big climax, you're not really sure what it is Sue's doing or why. Right. Which I thought was played very, very nicely by Amy Irving. See, and I thought that was one of the the better parts of the movie, even beyond the whole Carrie storyline, which, of course, is the the main focus. I thought those two portrayals and the people playing them were very believable. Like, Like you said, they're at that age where... They're doing things because they think it's for the best or for her betterment, but in reality, is it is really probably going to do more harm than good. But their heart's in the right place, but it's kind of not. Like they're still just kids. But I, I don't know. William Cat to me was one of the high points of the movie. Um, his portrayal, you know, just to me, I felt it felt genuine when he kind of grew to like her, and he's at the dance and he kisses her. I felt like you know he genuinely that's what he wanted to do. You know, he wasn't just doing it to be nice, and he wasn't playing a part. Right. And then there's the spectacular Piper Laurie, who I've been watching all week with the uh, news that Twin Peaks is coming back to Showtime in a couple of years. Uh, Been catching up on that. And I almost kind of like hate the whole uh, lampooning of her big lines in this, the you're all going to laugh at you comedy bit. I mean, I understand Adam Sandler. (laughs) Yeah. But I mean, she was just such a presence in this. Yeah. She was like this force of nature, this battleship that just like, I'm going in this direction and you're getting out of my way. And like everyone pretty much let her say what she wanted to say, let her do what she was going to do because they knew that stopping her would take so much effort and would be so socially uncomfortable that they just didn't want to deal with it. Yeah, she was the (laughs) she was the epitome of the the super uber creepy Christian. Like the the she was the epitome of what people imagine who don't fundamentalist exactly. Thank you. That's the words I was looking for. I couldn't come out with. Um, And I also real quick, I wanted to mention something else about 
the Sue and Tommy thing, I thought Amy Irving played that very demurely. Like, even though she was very pretty and part of the in crowd, she played sure. she played that part like she knew kind of what it was like to be on the other side of it. And, and it was legitimately empathetic. It wasn't just false sympathy. But anyway, go ahead. What were you going to say about... I was just going to say that in the book, it's made pretty explicit that uh, the brand of Christianity that the whites follow is pretty much a creation of Margaret White. It's a Christian cult with a population and congregation of two, her and her daughter. What was it with the creepy? warped everything so much. What was the creepy Jesus about, by the way? Who has a Jesus with light up eyes? What's up with that? Well, that, that wasn't actually him. Yeah. <laughs> well, that wasn't actually Jesus. That was a saint. Oh yeah, I can't remember the name of the saint. Uh, it wasn't included in the trivia that I have here on the show notes. Saint, but Saint, uh, <laughs> saint Telekinesis. Uh, saint statue. Saint Pincushion. Well, and I'm wanting to pick your brain a little about the book because after watching the three versions, and I know you only, I think everybody else only watched the two. I'm kind of wondering which one was closer and. And then I want to mention a couple of things that happened in the second one that didn't happen in the other two versions that I'm kind of wondering if, because I know like in The Shining, there's a lot that was left out about the topiaries coming to life. Yeah. And, and how would you do that in the movie? I mean, legitimately, without look stupid. I think a lot of what was left out, now, and it's been many, many years since I read the book. I was going to read it again for the show, but just ran out of time. Uh, most of it is stuff that doesn't translate as well, or it's actually stuff that they tried to work into the, uh, film and it didn't make it. Uh, one of the elements I do have here in the show notes, I'll just jump down to this is that, uh, there was a scene that was shot for both films, uh, both this and the 2013 featuring, uh, the beginning of the book where Carrie is a young child, uh, encounters a neighbor sunbathing. And as her mother carries her away, uh, she makes it rain stones. Like she's going to stone the naked sinner. And that shot uh, that, uh, scene was actually shot for both films and was cut from both, Uh, but it was left in the 2002 version, the TV version that happened. Oh, that's interesting. Yep. Hmm. And they actually open the movie opens with, her well i think it might be her mom on a bloody bed and it's raining down like meteors on fire but then later on they have that scene where she's a little kid and and she calls the girl uh she talks about her dirty pillows being out and then uh she makes it rain stones uh also i have found that the statue they as you called it creepy jesus is actually a statue of saint sebastian oh i was close oh yeah he got he got 18 in life i think didn't he ha <laughs> Uh, yeah he was no. a very crabby guy oh i see what you oh did there. Boy, yeah but those eyes what? man that 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 was freaky yeah. out of all three that was the freakiest jesus or thing statue whatever it was saint sebastian <laughs> the freakiest jesus <laughs> he turned the wine into fun <laughs> anyway <laughs> and there it is he's just sitting there with his finger on the trigger just waiting oh yeah <laughs> totally All right, so uh, on to trivia, uh, because we were talking about the performances and a lot of the trivia I've got here. Uh, Sissy Spacek uh, asked Brian De Palma how he wanted her to react when uh, she first realizes that she's bleeding in the famous shower scene when she gets her first period. And De Palma told her, it's like you've just been hit by a truck. 
Well, it turns out that uh, the act, art director, Jack Fisk, who was married to Sissy Spacek as a child, had been run over by a car. He'd actually been in that situation uh, when he was standing in the streets looking at Christmas lights. And he used his description of the experience. She took what he told her and translated that into a basis for her performance in the scene. It's like you've been hit by a truck. She's like, I know just the guy to talk to. <laughs> <laughs> right. Hey, Jack. Uh we kind of uh, glossed a little bit over uh, Nancy Allen's portrayal of Chris Harginson, who is the main antagonist, uh, kind of the focal point for all of the cruelty that eventually ends up happening to Carrie, including the famous uh, pig's blood scene at the prom. Well, apparently Nancy Allen... Uh, never realized exactly how evil her character was going to be until she finally saw all of the pieces put together in the finished film. She thought her and John Travolta were playing like the comic relief because they were such self-centered bickering morons that she thought that uh, there's no way that anyone could take their character seriously. And uh, apparently Piper Laurie also thought that uh, Margaret White was just so extreme and so over the top that uh, the film had to be a comedy. Yeah, I saw that in the they had a making of on the the version that I own of this, and uh, she was talking about that. I thought that was weird, you know, that you read the whole script and you see it a totally different way than it's actually portrayed on film. Yeah, just a little perspective from the actors. Uh, also, when Sissy Spacek was uh, getting ready to play Carrie, she uh, isolated herself from the rest of the cast so she could get that feeling. Decorated her dressing room with a heavy religious iconography and studied a famous illustrated Bible by Gustave Doré. Uh, in the illustrations, she paid particular attention to the body language of the people who were being stoned for their various sins. And every time she was in a scene, she either started or ended the scene in one of the positions of the sinners who were being stoned. What's that like, Pat, being stoned? Um, that, that's that's kind right, of right, interesting. Right, right method acting to to use that as your some daniel day lewis shit basis right i mean it's crazy i mean that's yeah i think it carried over into the film and and made it that much better because of it but i that's cool now i want to watch it again and see what she <laughs> see the poses yeah and she always had that so, sort of like it's beyond hesitant the Almost like an animal who's been beaten over and over again and doesn't know anything but pain and has come to believe it's normal, even though it's natural to shy away from it. She had those sorts of mannerisms in her interactions with everyone, not just her mother. Yeah. And when she finally kind of lets herself believe and feel kind of what it's like to be normal, I mean, that that really, in my opinion, kind of uh, set the stage for what happened at the end. You know, it made that that much more... Made more sense. Yeah, when she finally dropped all her guards and was kind of like, you know, embracing what was happening, you know. Yeah, yeah decided that uh, the powers that she was manifesting a little at a time, she was starting to understand them. She was starting to be able to control them just a little bit and decided that she was going to make her stand here. She was going to try to be normal and she was going to have this thing that she wanted before it was too late. And it uh, all backfires uh, pretty spectacularly. I guess we should get to talking about the uh, the scene. The, the scene. Yeah. Well, uh, just first of all, before we even get into the iconic scene, like this movie had, I, I I didn't remember this movie having so much nudity, and it it was all in like the first <laughs> first ninety seconds, like just a whole bunch of girls walking around completely naked. I was like, well, why don't I remember this? <laughs> pretty music in the background, and it's real like 
Yeah, it was. I mean, but this. I mean, in general, this movie was a lot more. I mean, even though it, it is about you know a girl getting you know a bucket of blood dumped on her. I mean, it was a lot more adult than I than I remembered it being. Yeah, actually, all of the girls who had those various nude scenes at the beginning apparently didn't really want to do them until uh, Brian De Palma actually showed them the footage which had already been shot of Sissy SpaceX nude scenes. And then they're like, okay, got no complaints now. Interesting. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) What do I get nude over here? It's my turn. (laughs) Come on, Mr. De Palma, make my career. All right, sorry, that was a little (laughs) bit over the top. But anyway... (laughs) (laughs) Um, well, you know, they, they, that was one of the things I think is missing in a lot of horror movies that is starting to kind of see a comeback now is the setup, because if you don't care about the characters, you don't care what happens. And the fact that each character had its own separate, I mean, they were part of a different cast system. Like, you know, you had the, the pretty people and the freaks and whatever, and, um, everybody had their own backstory and everybody had their own screen time to establish who they were in, in and outside of, of the actual storyline to some extent and uh so when you get to the end even the people that maybe shouldn't be punished are still being punished and you even care about those people because i mean they're part of the background and the scenery and they were just as important to the story as everybody else so you cared when people actually died you know it wasn't just random throwaway people right uh another interesting note is that amy irving was very nearly carrie uh, apparently De Palma really wanted her to play Carrie until the art director actually said, you know what, just let my wife, uh, audition. And Sissy Spacek got the audition based on her husband's recommendation and absolutely killed it. And, uh, they wanted to keep Amy Irving on. So she ended up being recast as Sue, but she was almost mm. Carrie. Well, apparently according to Sissy Spacek in one of the interviews I watched, she, uh, she, when she was getting ready for the the interview, she came in and she had put like um, Vaseline or something in her hair and hadn't bathed for a couple of days and just was really over the top with it. And she got in there and they were trying to get makeup on her to make her look better. And she's like, stay away from me. And so, you know, she was really getting into the park. She wanted it, you know, and it worked, obviously. Patrick, any thoughts? I just, I mean, I really like this movie. Um, I didn't, I didn't expect to just because it's kind of a... I don't know. It's, it's it's kind of a really basic premise, honestly, and I, and I was just kind of like, how can you make an entire movie out of a weird girl who gets revenge? <laughs> sure. And you know, I mean, it. I think Sissy Spacek, honestly, I don't I don't care what people say about her. Like they have a lot of you know, like you said, a lot of people have a lot of criticisms about her. I think what Josh said is true. She was perfect for this role, and I think she carried the movie and really made the movie. Her and her interactions with um with Piper Laurie, you know, th- those were the best parts of the whole movie. I agree. All right, so are we ready to talk about uh, the iconic scene, or do you guys want to hear about the Star Wars connections? <laughs> Wait, there's well, Star you Wars can't connection? tease something like that and not talk about it. So just, <laughs> what are the All Star right, there's, there's a couple of Star Wars connections to this movie. Uh, apparently, uh, casting calls for uh, Carrie and uh, Star Wars were done at about the same time. They were done in the same. No, your, your correction. <clears throat> uh, when Brian De Palma was interviewed, and the thing I was watching, he, him, and Lucas were in the same casting studio. And they were interviewing at this, or they were doing it at the same time. So Lucas was actually um, casting for Star Wars, and then if there were people he didn't want or that De Palma wanted, they would he would just he just sat there and watched the the and he picked out people because of that. Right, William Cat was there for the Luke same Skywalker actor, pool, actor pools for that. Yeah, absolutely. And also, uh, Steven Spielberg apparently was hanging around the Carrie set. Uh, flirting with all the various girls, and apparently it paid off for him because uh, he ended up marrying Amy Allen. They're married for many, many years. 
Amy Irving. Amy Irving, sorry. Okay, I mixed up Amy Irving and Nancy Allen. Then he ended I up with maybe Kate Capshaw. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, William Cat. Imagine that as he if he would have been Luke Skywalker instead of Mark Hamill. <laughs> it almost happened. That's interesting. Yeah, 1985 to 1989 was uh, Amy Irving's um, marriage to Steven Spielberg. So she probably came out of that, that. right? I'm sure. Yep. All right. So uh, the prom. Ah, yes, the prom. It was just so well done as far as like you know the setting, like 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 we said earlier, just setting it up to where she, you know, she has her walls up the entire time, and she finally lets them down and allows herself to be happy, and then they dump a bunch of pig blood on her. And as soon as the split screen hits, it's on. Yeah. Like, you just get to see Carrie standing there still almost in shock, just looking around. And then it cuts from uh, scene to scene uh, as her fury is unleashed on everybody. Uh, right after, in her mind, everyone, including the people who are there defending her, stop and laugh. And it was all a trick from the beginning. And it's pretty obvious because they cut to what's really happening and then they cut to what's in Carrie's head. I was going to say there's that beautiful interplay between what she's thinking she's seeing and what's actually happening. Yep. Yeah. And and is it just me or maybe I'm overthinking this, but shouldn't there have been a little bit more coagulated blood clots somewhere on her? <laughs> probably, yeah, it, probably since it was in the bucket so long. Right. I mean, I understand it wouldn't it wouldn't have all coagulated in that amount of time. But on the top, the skim in the top, there should have been something and like a for a smaller bucket right they got it they got it pretty well dead center but that's neither here nor there that's that's just a moot point and what's the deal with in in the book maybe you can clarify what happened because in the movie in in each version of the movie um what's his nuts always gets hit in the head by the cane by the bucket so does that just knock him unconscious does it kill him no it's pretty clear in the book that the bucket kills him when uh, that was not part of the plan but yeah the bucket falls gets him in just the wrong spot on the head and kills him dead okay and that's really not clear in the 76 like it seems like he's knocked out and his friends are taking him away and he just doesn't make it like probably dies in the fire that's that's what i thought honestly yeah the, the the second one yeah sure the prom scene apparently took two weeks to shoot and took 35 uh takes wow well there's a lot going on i mean even though there's not a lot of dialogue, there's a lot going on. Um, uh, and and a it's, whole, it's, it's a, like a continuity nightmare, that whole scene, I would bet. <laughs> sure. Like cutting it together and making sure that it all flows the way it's supposed to and just keeping track of what's supposed to happen in what order. Right. Well, in the whole Miss Collins thing, which it's Miss Desjardins and the other two versions, uh, which I assume is the book version of her name. That is the book name, um, yes. I, I, I found it interesting because I couldn't remember what happened to her when I was watching this again um, as to whether she was spared or whether she died. And uh, I think in all three, she ultimately was spared, even though it was kind of hurtful in the way it was oh, done, no. wasn't it? In 76, in 76, she was either crushed or cut in half yeah. by a basketball hoop. Yeah, it just dropped right Was on that her. her? That was her. That was her. I can't remember now. But because I know she in. Well, anyway, we'll get to that. But. Well, in the book, uh, Miss Desjardins actually lives. And in, as you say, in all other versions, she lives. That is the one thing that's different about the 1976 film is that the gym teacher who reached out to her is actually still slain. And I think that's just a Brian De Palma take on it, where she is so far gone, she just believes everybody except her mother's in on it. Well, then we know what happens there. Surprise twist, her mother's in on it, too. 
Yeah. They're all going to laugh at you. Sorry, I got to do it because I like doing the voice. Sure. All right. Uh, anybody have anything more to say about the 1976? Uh, I want to talk about the her her mother. Okay, yeah, let's let's talk about the ending a little like, bit. How, how, uh, how the hell do you get a potato peeler to jab into somebody that hard, is what I want to know. Telekinesis? Force, yes. You can jab right. anything to anybody. You, you use the force, I guess? Yes. Another Star Wars reference. I Mass times acceleration. That... <laughs> Of the of the th- the three versions I saw, that one to me was the most powerful. I I don't know if it was Piper Laurie's take on it or the way that it was shot and and done, but that one always bothers me the most. Or bothered me the most out of the three. Well, her when when she has her big confession about like how Carrie was conceived, it's got this weird mix of almost like heartbroken confession meets Baptist preacher revival kind of mournful thing going and just I, the, her delivery there is so unusual just like the speed of her voice uh the way she trembles and then doesn't was just such a powerful scene yeah i agree with that and uh, just the whole well the, and then you've got the the crucifixion overtone that's not very subtle yeah sure. <laughs> yeah 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 <laughs> um but then the the one thing that it carried through uh, all pun intended there uh, through two of the three movies is the ending, which I think is the most effective in the first one. And I don't know what the the book has to say about it, but um, just that last sequence where it's a dream, but in a way you're I mean, it almost feels like it's not. So I don't know in the book, I guess we're not calling spoilers, but, you know. Amy Irving goes to the grave and it says, you know, Carrie burns in hell and has the arrow pointing down. And then it's the pile of stones, which they never explain in the 76 version, um, but are explained in the other two. And her hand pops up at the end. And that little jump scare, I knew it was coming and it still made me jump. So what happens in the book then? Is that Uh, the book takes a very different. It doesn't deal with Sue Snell at all. Uh, It actually talks about how the. event which becomes known as the black prom becomes a national tragedy on the scope of something like the kennedy assassination and actually prompts governments worldwide to uh pay more attention to telekinesis and psychic powers so it's like the mutant act almost and uh there is a suggestion that uh, right around the time carrie dies that an extremely powerful psychic is born and there's a quote from the mother uh, that talks about how she's going to be like a real world shaker or something. Uh, and I guess the implication is, is that Carrie is reincarnated into a more loving home in a world that's ready for her and her powers. Interesting. Interesting. So that's not explicitly stated, but that is the typical interpretation of the ending because it's so weird that there's this one random off character that talks about her daughter who was just born and how powerful she is. Yeah, but they they go more for the national and even global uh, consequences of what happened at the prom. And basically the town in the book after the black prom shuts down, like people start moving away and ends up being a town of about 400 people. Yeah, you lose your entire teenage population. That's pretty much going to end. Yeah, it was over 200 people that were killed at the prom, according to the the movie. And a school, you know, school like that, everybody goes to the same school. Or I mean, a town like that, everybody goes to the same school. That would have been their whole Uh, their, their whole senior year class and actually that nightmare sequence uh that was actually sissy spacex hand uh she insisted that she do that not a double hmm. for the hand shooting up out of carrie's grave so she's just basically a female daniel day lewis basically 
Uh, also, unintentional method acting. PJ Souls, who played Norma, uh, when she got hit with the fire hose and uh, her character was killed, the water pressure actually burst her air. She actually died. <laughs> totally. No, but uh, she uh, uh, basically the the force of the fire hose actually hit the actress, burst both of her eardrums, and w- when she her head lolls to the side, she's not unconscious, but she has lost the ability to maintain equilibrium because the inner ears fucked up. Damn. Totally. <laughs> so yeah. See anything you like? Um, PJ Souls. God yeah. bless you. Um, I don't know when do you I, I want to cover the 2002 one in, in brief, but I don't know whether you do that before or after the break. Let's let's lead off with that after the break. Yeah. Does anyone else have, have anything have to, say to say about, about this? That, so it's just going to be all you won't take too. No, it's just sure. a quick, quick coverage of what was different between all three versions. And I assume we'll do our thoughts on it at the end. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Uh, we ready for the break then, yeah. guys. All right. To the break. Right now, I'm the biggest flamer that you know. I'm a bad boy, and I was never sad when Santa gave me cold. Come see things from my view, and maybe I can lighten up your life. I love to see things in a fiery state. Just give me a torch, and I won't hesitate. I put the sin in incinerate. All right, everybody, we are back from break. Welcome back to 40 Going on 14. I don't think we need to reintroduce ourselves. You know who we are. We're going to talk about Carrie from 2013. This is the reimagining of the classic Hori? Hori? Hori tale. Classic horror tale about Carrie White, a shy girl outcast by her peers and sheltered by her deeply religious mother who unleashes telekinetic terror on her small town after being pushed too far at her senior prom. They're all going to pat at you. <laughs> the director was Kimberly Pierce. Is that a misspelling? Yeah. No, that's how her her name is spelled. Oh, okay, all right. And again, writers Lawrence Cohen, Roberto Aguirre Sacasa, and obviously <laughs> written by Stephen King originally. Josh killed a Sacasa in the sink once. <laughs> Fried to case up. So real quick, just slight detour because I, I did take the time because I, I admittedly I'm a I'm a bit of a, a fan of Carrie, the original movie. It's in my probably my top fifty somewhere for horror films. Um I've never done an actual list of top fifty horror films. I don't I don't think. know if I've seen fifty horror films. Um <laughs> I've watched twelve in the month of October already. Um so and I I took a long like almost a year off. So but anyway, so I, I watched the two thousand two television movie, which was directed by uh, David Carson, who did mo- probably most people will know him for doing uh, Star Trek Generations, that movie. Um, starred Angela Bettis, who's Lucky McKee's muse. If you've ever seen May or um, The Woman, which The Woman is amazing, by the way. Um, she's kind of this weird, outcast, odd looking girl. And if you ever want to see a good movie, May, just go rent May now. Uh, Patricia Clark. M-A-Y play- or M-A-E? M-A-Y. And just look for Angela Bettis or Lucky McKee, and that'll be the keyword to track it down. It's it's a it's a pretty well known sub independent kind of thing, sort of. Anyway, uh, Patricia Clarkson played Margaret White. Um, the only other name anybody might know is uh, Catherine Isabel played Tina. 
she was uh, she's known for the Ginger Snap series, and then uh, Emile De Raven, who I think was in Lost, maybe she was Chris Hargison, um, and yeah, and then David Keith, who played in they 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 took it. This was like a two and a two hour fifty minute movie, and they took a lot of detours off the original. the The basic premise of this movie is the same, however, they interweave it with David Keith playing Detective John Mulcahy, um, who is basically interviewing. Um, uh, I uh, can't think of her name now. The Amy Irving character in the original. She's played by. Sue. Um, Isn't it Sue? Sue Snell? Yeah. Talking Sue Snell? Yeah. She's, uh, Sue Snell is being interviewed by the detective as well as a couple other people that are minor characters about what happened on that night. And they're trying to figure out what caused all the, the horror and the, the mass chaos at the prom. And so that's how they, they weave the story together is with these police interviews. Um, it opens with the house being bombarded by um, meteorites, flaming meteorites, as I believe it's the birth of Carrie, which they, they do touch on in the new one, but not in the original. I'm just imagining the meteorites coming down. Hey! <laughs> yes, they're flaming meteorites, Pat. Yes, Flaming meteorites. Um, yeah, we got it. Patricia Clarkson is an appropriate choice to play her mother, um, although she doesn't take it nearly far enough on either either side of the remake or the original. Um, Angela Bettis was 30 at the time, uh, 29. So Ooh. she was way too old um, to play the part. But she's I, I love her to death. And, you know, anything she does, I think she's always good. But this wasn't she's really a high school student. She's all, is it hot in here? <laughs> she's like she's like the Luke Perry of the high school. <laughs> she's got wrinkles and three kids. And yeah, anyway, so. It, you know, it, it takes some liberties. They um, they do the scene, like I said earlier, with uh, her talking about the dirty pillars on the neighbor and the, the rocks falling down. Um, and in this one, they take that a whole step further with after the prom where she's walking down the middle of the street, flipping cars over. You know, things are lighting on fire. She's moving everything out of the middle of the street. It's cracking. You know, it's this big, dramatic kind of walk home where she's destroying everything in her wake. I'm, I mean, she literally is just destroying the whole town. And she gets back to the house. The whole thing happens with her mom. That pretty much plays out more or less the same way. She gives the same speech. She tries to kill her. Um, and then uh, after she kills her mom, she goes outside and she rains stones on, down on the house and completely destroys the house with the rain of stones, which then explains why there's stones in the, the hole. Now, the big deviation between the two stories, and this is where I wondered if it was with the book, which apparently it's not. At the end of the movie, um, Sue finishes giving her um, speech, which she's played by an African-American actress instead of a, a white actress. Not that it matters, but it was another slight variation. And David Keith kind of is sus suspect about the whole thing a little bit, but he never says why. So they show her go to the grave. It's got the same, you know, Carrie Rots in Hell thing. And then they cut to a nighttime scene where she's driving in the car and sitting next to her is Carrie White in a, in a like a blonde wig. And they're talking back and forth about whatever. And what it, what it, she's Carrie's kind of naive about it. She's like, well, where are we going? What am I doing? She's like, you're getting a chance to start over. She so she's she's like, I'll take you this far and then you're going to have to hop a bus and go to Florida and never come back. And so they basically she gets away with it, leaves and starts a new life over as a teenager. Huh? So no, not not the way it happened in the book. Really, really soft ending. It felt like a, a, a movie of the week ending. Honestly, um, I had to rewatch it twice because I didn't quite get all the dialogue. But basically, she's yeah, she's starting over and Sue was protecting her with the police inspector by covering everything up. 
but everything else is more or less the same for the most part. It, it was not very well done. I mean, I watched the whole thing, but it was definitely lacking. Okay. So anyway, going. All right. Move, moving on to the uh, 2013. Yeah. Yes, sir. yeah. Sorry, but I, I forgot you wanted to talk about the 2002. I apologize. No, that's all right. So as uh, Patrick said, directed by Kimberly Pierce, written again by Lawrence D. Cohen with uh, collaboration from Roberto Aguirre Sacasa. Sucasas, mi casa. That's right. Um, we have Julianne Moore uh, playing the role of Margaret White. Chloe Grace Moretz playing Carrie. Uh, Sue Snell is played by Gabriella Wilde. Uh, Chris Harginson is played by Portia Doubleday. Uh, this is the only uh, time in all of the portrayals where Chris has been portrayed with the same hair color she had in the book. Every other time Chris has been portrayed, I guess including the Broadway musical version of Carrie, she's been portrayed as a blonde. So that's interesting. Oh, wait, Chris Harkison. She's the the troublemaker, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. she's the main antagonist. The one that wouldn't you she know, had do dark hair in this. So, yeah. And the I was one- trying to- yeah, she did have dark hair in this one, which is interesting because Portia Doubleday is normally a blonde. Uh, Zoe Belkin played Tina. We There's a lot here in the cast of uh, what I would consider fairly minor characters until we get down to Ansel Elgort, who played Tommy Ross. Oh, she was blonde in the 2002 one. And then uh, Judy Greer playing Miss uh, Desjardins. I wonder what name, that, what, what ethnicity that name is. That's an odd name. What, Elgort? Ansel, Ansel Elgort. Ansel Elgort. American. Hmm. Uh, He's American. Yeah. He's his mother is Russian Jewish, and his mother oh. is English, German, Norwegian. So he's a so mutt. Yeah, I don't know. Anyway. Yeah, yeah, I would not have guessed he'd have such an ethnic-sounding name seeing him. Yeah, exactly. Hmm. All right, moving on. Sorry. So are we talking about the cast first, or you got what are we doing next? Trivia? What? Uh, we can we can talk to trivia. This is uh, also the, in terms of firsts for the movie. They were trying to say that this was going to be more of a retelling of Stephen King's book and less of a remake of the 1976 carry. And we see that while that may have been the goal, it didn't really pan out. However, there were a few things they did uh, that were the first time ever. Uh, Clary Grace Moritz is the only person who was actually a teenager to ever play the character Carrie, <laughs> who was a teenager. <laughs> yeah, we, yep. <laughs> And because uh, she was so young when she did this, uh, laws would only allow her to work eight hours a day. So a lot of the times Julianne Moore was supposed to be interacting with her, she wasn't actually present. Uh, The stand-in for Carrie was actually the director, uh, Kimberly Pierce. They're all going to laugh at you? Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) This is the first... uh, Oh, I'm sorry. You just said that. Why am I reading? Yeah. Yeah. we already talked about that one. And, we talked yeah. about that. Yeah, I, I've pretty much covered yeah, all the trivia I've gotten the, the notes right, good, throughout Good job. I don't have show. to read shit. I like that. <laughs> you, 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 there you go. Good job, Pat. <laughs> Very nice. Um, well, I I think I said it earlier that out of the three movies, you know, I think, again, Chloe Grace Moritz or Chloe Moritz Grace, however they are putting it this time, um, she is just unconventional enough to believe that she might be in the outcast compared to the other girls. But at the same time, not. And Julianne Moore, if you're going to recast the movie, uh, she, in my opinion, was the perfect choice. Yeah, I love Julianne Moore. Like, I, I, as an actress, yeah. as a like, as a icon, as a crush, celebrity crush, all that. I actually didn't like either of their performances in this, however. What? Where, where Joel said that he could buy that she was an outcast and unconventional. Uh, 
I, I didn't buy Chloe Grace Moretz portrayal from the beginning. Uh, part of it was, I think, a bit of a miscast. I, I think she's a little bit too conventionally attractive to pull it off. And uh, it requires, in order to get over that, uh, which is possible, like with uh, sufficient acting ability, someone could get past the fact that she doesn't exactly look the part. She's a little too pretty. Uh, I just don't feel she had the acting chops to get there. Just comparing her to Sissy Spacek, which may not be fair, you've kind of got, I don't, I didn't see her being timid enough in her dealings with either the other kids or her mother. There was a lot bigger streak of rebellion and a lot yes, less that's yes. mama knows what's best for I me. Definitely, I definitely noticed that, that she was a lot more vocal about arguing with her mother in this version. And uh, when she does get to use her powers and eventually has her freak out, apparently like rolling on ecstasy and using psychic powers are basically the same thing. <laughs> Well, you just have big wide eyes and your mouth open a little bit, and uh, that's pretty much all you and need. And hold your hold your arms out like Frankenstein. I did. Yeah. I was bothered by the way she portrayed the the final scene, which we should probably wait to talk about until we get there. But um, I, I it's it, where I say Julianne Moore is a perfect casting. I think I think she did underplay it um, because she's fully capable. I mean, if you see her freakout scenes and boogie nights, I mean, she's fully capable of going over the top and making it still believable. Um, so I think she could have taken it a lot farther and gotten some more mileage out of it. And I also, I, I, I think that Judy Greer um, gave it a little too much of a hard edge. Like, I, I want Miss Desjardins to be more like the Betty Buckley version where she's a bit more empathetic. Judy Greer seemed to me like she was she felt for her, but it was more of an angry kind of thing. Like she wanted to get back for torment she dealt with as a kid um, on these girls. And let me just say in the 2002 and the 2013 version, they have that sequence where the dad comes in. And I don't remember that. That wasn't in the 76 one, if I remember correctly. No, it was And not. it did not seem to be a part of the book either. But it was in. I mean, maybe, maybe I forgot. But. It was in 2002, the uh, not quite identical, but it was a very similar sequence where the principal sticks up for his teacher and you know is defending the school at the same time the almost identical to the way it was in 2013 uh, just so i can address before we move too far on because i didn't actually get to what i had to say about julianne moore uh i also love her but she the, the problem is is she kind of had the opposite problem i had with chloe grace moretz chloe grace moretz carry was too uh she had too much command of her own destiny. She was too uh, headstrong. And Julianne Moore's Margaret was almost not enough. That whole force of nature we had with uh, Piper Laurie, there are too many moments where Julianne Moore's inter interpretation of the character was submissive, uh, quietly cutting herself while she saw things that she didn't agree with in the world. And it's an interesting interpretation of the character, but it was a note that for me personally fell flat. Yeah, I would agree with that. Because... In, I like in, that scene when she was digging the, the file under her leg or whatever when she was talking to that woman. It kind of creeped me out. Well, but you see also she's got cuts on her arms and things also right. at other points. Um, and, and just the fact that the way she broke out of the, the little cubby hole, you know, just proved that she pain wasn't an issue. But I agree. I think because of the way they did it in the original with Sissy Spacek and Piper Laurie, it was more of a caged animal thing where she's been under this thumb and this rule and she didn't know any better. And all of a sudden she she realized that she was more powerful and could do all these things. And so it had the opposite effect where Chloe seemed to play it more like she knew all along and was kind of just building up until she 
found the right time to use it. Like she was very much in command of her powers. Yeah, and and there Whereas, was definitely more, more of I'm sorry, I thought you were done. Yeah, go ahead. No, I was please. gonna say there was definitely more of a motherly love vibe in this version than in the other one. Well, even I mean, that she, last scene. Right. I mean, it just you know, Piper and Lori, you know, she was just basically almost like, you know, a warden, whereas, you know, Julianne Moore was more like a mother. And it's something you pointed out, Josh, that in the the prom sequence in the original where she's just standing there blank eyed. I mean, it's almost like something else has taken over. She's no longer in command of her own faculties. She's right. She's completely shut down and it's just on on autopilot at that point. Whereas in the new one, it's a very purposeful. She knows exactly what she's doing. I also took issue with uh, the fact that they made uh, Sue and Tommy absolutely 100% from the beginning, sympathetic, obvious good guys. There's no question about where their uh, loyalties lay, what it was they were trying to do. Uh, And it removed something that was very important, I felt. And I, I felt that the film and the story suffered for them kind of missing the point of what was interesting about the way they were portrayed in 1976. Right, because it's like they were trying to make it easier for the audience to follow. Sure. And I will say that this is the only one that actually addressed the fact that Sue, uh, in the book, suspected, and in the movie it's explicit that she's pregnant with Tommy's baby. And that wasn't in the 2002 at all. Okay. Yeah, they left it out. And I agree with you on that. I mean, I think that this almost... uh, you have to have that ambiguity. I can't say yes, it. Ambiguity. ambiguity in the original to make it work. Um, here, I mean, it was like a it was like a flip. Like she, she was on their side, and then in a matter of a second, oh well, you know what? No, I'm going to be good now. You know, there was no real, there was no arc, there was, there was no, no question. Struggle. Yeah, yeah, it was just it was a light switch. Whoop. Oh, okay, yeah, we're good guys now. And uh, yep, I didn't, I didn't buy it. I didn't, it didn't work for me. And that I agree with you on that. And uh, I don't know. I, there, there are just a, a litany of problems I had with the film, and it seemed like they spent most of their time trying to figure out how to update it. It's like, okay, well, this is 2011 now, so we're going to have to introduce cell phones, or we're going to have to deal with YouTube and all these other things that the kids are into. And they're focusing on the details while missing the point of the story. Right. And uh, that just really bothered me. It's like some of the stuff they thought about, it's like, okay, you've got an overprotective mother, an overprotective mother in... 2013 is not going to let her daughter walk home alone. Fine. So we, we make that change. We show the Jesus fish thing on her car. Oh, okay, fine. Yeah, that's that's a thing. It, it just felt like that was what they were bringing to the table. And overall, it just wasn't enough for me. But I think that if Piper Laurie's character would have been in this modern take, that Jesus fish wouldn't... Because she was more, like you guys had said, fundamentalist. I mean, she was very... I mean... If, if she could have been Amish, you know, <laughs> yeah, she, yeah, or she would surround her car with a, like a crown of thorns or I don't know. It would have been much right. more, much less probably surround commercial. her sheets with it. So every time she drove, she'd be you know, uncomfortable. <laughs> it was too commercial for her, for, for yeah. the type of religion she was creating. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. She was much more kind of, uh, uh, she's, the crusades. She's not the, one, she's not the kind of Christian that goes to the Christian bookshop to buy a Jesus fish. No, she looks down on those people. Exactly. Right. And I thought it was really, really a strange choice to have her working as a seamstress in a local shop. I think they were trying to to create uh, that part of the story that was missing because, you know, in the original, she makes her own dress. So maybe they were planning on her making the dress for her daughter, her daughter taking it. I, I mean, she bought she it. She was a seamstress in the first one, too. That's what the, oh, the mom was. Well, she was shown working at home on her sewing right. machine. But she wouldn't. Uh, it wasn't at a store. No, 
right? Uh, whatever that was. Yeah, Laundry. she was a homebody laundromat, right? That's what it felt like, like a dry cleaner. Yeah, and I just thought that was a really unusual choice. It's like I understood what Julianne Moore was going for, sort of the self-flagellant uh, aspect of Christianity, where there's punishment through physical pain administered to themselves, and then like the trying to use that as a weapon against her daughter. Like the Opus Day. Yeah, but I mean, I, it was an interesting choice, like intellectually, but not one that worked for me in the context of the story. Yeah, personally, I, I didn't. I didn't necessarily think it was necessary, but it was definitely an interesting little uh, character twist, flaw, whatever you want to call it. Well, I sure. I think you you hit the nail on the head earlier, and I think that's where I was lying on the, on last week's film choice was that they were updating it, and you know, I may need to go rewatch. Um, Last Fright Night at some point, but uh, you know uh, where they took out what was important and they just updated it so that somebody watching it today that didn't know the story would be like, oh yeah, I get it. You know that makes sense to me, well, but it, I mean, it a, missed a, the point. A big a big problem with Hollywood nowadays, and I I just uh, read an article about this the other day. It's like everybody is skewing everything towards PG thirteen because that's where the most money is, and like. R-rated movies are getting cut and edited down to PG-13 movies, and they're just losing a lot of their essence. And a lot, you know, because it's all you know, it's all about the money now. You know, it's like if you're going to release a big move, a big movie, you need it to play to the most people. And the way to get the most people is PG-13. So a lot of horror movies are suffering because they're getting chopped down from R movies. Like the the original Carrie was was, was an R movie, and was this PG-13? I don't know if it was, but it sure felt like I'm, it. I'm fairly certain it was. I'm yeah. going to look right now, but I'm almost positive. I mean, they didn't—they didn't curse, and there was very—you know—the only blood that was shown was what was on Carrie and Tommy. Oh no! Rated R for blooded, bloody violence, disturbing images, language, and wow. some sexual content. That, well, they—they de- they definitely didn't didn't ramp the language up like they did in the first one. They, they that definitely surprised that. me. Yeah, I didn't think it would actually R. Well, when you get into the big special effects sequences, and uh, this was another disappointment to me, is like you replace the awesome camera work with a split screen in the original with a bunch of CGI and flashy lights and big explosions, the Michael Bay effect. And I, I took, I think where I took the biggest issue was uh, what I kind of touched on a little bit ago with her control of their powers. And I think the part that bothered me the most was her part with Miss Desjardins where she literally lifts her up. And even though she's kind of choking her, she's saving her at the same time. And it just it was too much to me maybe she knew about the star wars connection and just felt she had to get a little darth vader in there. <laughs> i guess i don't know it just it bothered me because it's like i you know she was saving her and I, I get it but at the same time if you're brand new to your powers and you're just learning about them a week ago you're not gonna have that much control at that point sissy spacek was auditioning for empire strikes back that's what it was she was gonna be the wookie <laughs> <laughs> um as much as i like uh, Chloe Grace Moritz, because I, I honestly, I, I've been a big fan of hers ever since the first Kick-Ass. I, I, re- yep. I really like her um, as an actress. She's a lot of fun. I, I agree though. I, I don't think she was the right choice for this. I don't think I necessarily, I don't necessarily think it was, it was that she's not a good enough actress. I think you know she, maybe she got some bad direction. But I mean, like you said, she's just too pretty for the role. She's not awkward or gangly enough. You know, I mean, as as Arnold Schwarzenegger, you know the great Arnold Schwarzenegger of of Commando fame said, <laughs> um, he, he said it's tough to go into a movie and try to play a normal guy when your audience is used to seeing you destroy armies. He's like, 
whether you're playing a, a new character or not, it doesn't matter. There's a part of their brain that still sees you as the character that you play most. You know, and it's, so it's, it's you got to do a really good job to play against that. And she's a she's a mostly known for the Kickass series, so she's this girl that you know you're used to seeing go around and just beat the shit out of everybody and full of confidence, all this kind of stuff. She, I think she was just the wrong the wrong actress for the role, honestly. Yeah, and I'm certainly not disparaging her acting ability. Not at all. I no. think that it's almost an impossible task to get over there and do the full reverse. And the fact that she wasn't up to the task doesn't mean she's a poor actress. I would wonder, she would have to be an actress like for our time in order to have pulled it off. Right. And she's good, but she's maybe not that good. Well, and I wonder if she just just said, you know what, I've seen the original or I've read the book or whatever, and I'm going to take my take on it. And her take just happened to be a poor choice. You know, she wanted to make it more modern. So in that case, you know, nowadays kids are a little less mindful of their parents than they were in the 70s. So maybe she was just coming from that perspective. But yeah, I I don't think it was a good choice because it did kind of deflate some of that interplay between her and her mom. That was, I think, really important to the original story. So, I mean, what did you guys think about the the prom scene in this one versus the original? Uh, I think another real sour note for me was that uh, Billy... Uh, was the actual architect of the pig killing and pig blood plan. Well, he was so hateful, like so like he was like uh, like he was fresh out of jail. Yeah. Yeah. And like he, he goes to the it's a very different note when he looks at his girlfriend. He's like, this is criminal assault. This isn't just a plan. You tell anybody and, I've, and I'll kill you. That's a really like strong statement to make. And I don't feel his character had had enough screen time to earn us being able to like see him say that and take it seriously right. yeah or, or just not you know not just completely i don't know what, what, what uh, completely turn on the character at that point like you can't even you can't even you can't even come up with a logical way to even treat him like i'm, I'm trying i'm trying to figure out how to how to say it like he almost becomes a caricature at that point sure you well, know because i mean it's, it's just it's just such a giant leap in that character's development to, to take it that far because you know, I mean, he hasn't been seen as a kind of you know he's he's been seen as just basically like a bully and an asshole, but not like a you know a, a felon you know or anything like. That. Sure. Well, I think part of the logic there from the director or the screenwriter was that that even even she was in con- being controlled by someone else, um, and so some of her actions then became a little more sympathetic when she gets killed. Although she uh, never mind, I actually I yeah, forgot it's, her it's, last yeah, line. It's... She brings it on herself, but still, I yeah, mean, exactly. she's still kind of under his control she's kind of the abused girlfriend but it was it was, right. it was a, kind of almost a cheap way to to give her an out when she'd right. been such a bitch the whole movie you know and it just it just seemed kind of cheap you know well there's that like, last line though before they bite it where she yeah. tells him basically to run her down run her and kill over. Her. yeah exactly yeah. So, that was a weird yeah. death scene I don't I'm, well the death scene they originally tried to do that entire sequence practically like they actually blew up the uh, gas station for real that wasn't CGI so the only CGI there was uh, putting Chloe Grace Moretz back into the scene where they actually blew up a gas station they tried to do the same thing with the glass in the car and it just didn't look right so they ended up having to go back and shoot that as CGI but I just don't even really know if that was necessary it just, yeah, it, it it just looked unrealistic. Like when well, when you go when when you smash your face into a windshield, nobody like sticks through it perfectly, and it's just like you know, got your head stuck out like a like a giant glory hole. <laughs> I mean, I most most people either go all the way through the windshield or they hit it and they bounce back, and the and the windshield doesn't break. Uh, one r- interesting little fact about some of the scenes: uh, there are 
almost out of time and just about out of budget, and they were going to have to cut the scene where Carrie goes and sees the material that she's going to use to make her dress, but the director was adamant that it would be included, so they ended up having to do it with only one camera, pretty much in one take. Um, so... so- I think we're getting close to the end of this, and I, I just have to make sure we at least mention, and I want to get your thoughts on it, especially you, Josh, because you've read the book, and uh, that the last sequence where she picks up her mom, and it's obvious that she's using her powers to some extent, and it's not just adrenaline. That was in, that was in this one, right? Yes. Yeah, and she's holding her there for a minute, and to me, that completely any relationship that was there before, it just it to me, it just destroyed it because at that point, you realize that. Uh, her mom, I don't know. It was that whole motherly thing versus the uh, fundamentalist tyrant kind of whatever was happening. I don't know. It just, it just bothered me. It just really hurt the whole sequence, in my opinion. Yep. I'm with you. I don't remember. Like I said, it's been many years, maybe 20 years since I've read the book. Uh, but uh, I, I bl- agree with your assessment of that particular scene. That just did not work. Honestly, if I hadn't had to watch that so we could talk about it this evening, I probably wouldn't have finished this movie. Wow. Okay. <laughs> yeah. And and speaking of which, of uh, things that made me just kind of turn off completely, because I was trying to give it a fair shake, especially after my complete kind of destruction of the last two movies we watched, um, and probably a little unjustly so. But um, the, the the last sequence with the the cemetery or the headstone. I mean, the hand coming up is is a little bit, you know, kind of odd, but it works in in the, the way they set it up. But in this one with the headstone cracking with the horrible CGI, it just I I don't yeah. know. It was definitely not the the shocker that the first was. There's a much better ending in the first one. Yep. And you asked one of you asked a question earlier that none of us asked or that none of us answered. You said uh, someone asked which prom scene did you like better, and I would have to go with even though I didn't even though I liked the first movie overall better. I would have to go with the prom scene from the second one because it was just much more grand and epic. Even though, even uh, you're talking about the actual prom, not the the nightmare after the pig blood hit. No, I'm talking about the whole, the, the, the whole you know telekinetic explosion. I liked it better in the second movie just because it was much more grand. Even though it was Michael Bay inspired. Oh, the actual explosion, uh, like when the gym. I'm talking like... about everything the, from the time the bu- the bucket oh. comes down till till you know really the people in the car yeah get whacked yeah. Yeah, I I couldn't disagree more. Yeah, I'm on Josh with that with Josh on that there one. There was just there was just one scene in particular that I I thought was just cinematically really gorgeous where they did a big pan out and like you know you just saw all the carnage and then you had to look really carefully to even see where she was in the in the scene walking through all of it and just causing all of it around her. It was it was a pretty cool shot. I'm not going to say that's not a good shot, but I all of the effects and all of the pageantry and all of the millions of dollars that went into that, to me, didn't capture the same raw intensity that just the split screen effect. Very simple camera trick, just good solid filmmaking had just for me personally out of the first yeah. one. Which hey, I even thought the the 2002 version had a better prom scene than this one. I think this one just was- took. Just that that one scene that I really that one shot that I really like that big shot when you know she's just you, well, that's you had, cool. like yeah I like that shot a lot that's the one I mean, that, that 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 particular shot drew, uh, drew my attention more than any shot in the first movie. There's nothing wrong with okay. that. Yeah. You're wrong, but there's nothing wrong with that. <laughs> no, I, I had to get that's my shot in somewhere to be able to say that. Hey. <laughs> okay, so uh, overall uh, impressions uh, on the two films. It sounds like we're all pretty much in agreement that we love the first one. Yeah. I yeah. Think so. 
Okay, second one. I, I've made my as strongly as I felt about Fright Night being everything that's right with a remake. I feel equally strongly that Carrie was everything that is wrong with a remake. Hated it. I think it was a bit better than the 2002 version, but it still it it suffered from a lot of the things that I was saying last week. Um, again, uh, possibly unjustly so, but I think that uh, it. Yeah, it, it had a lot of the trappings of remakes that make people poo-poo them so much. And I'm I'm a huge champion of remakes. I, I firmly believe that they're an, a, a valid form of of filmmaking. And this one, I think, is part of the reason why people get the wrong impression. Yep. Yep. Pat? Um, I liked it. I didn't love it. I, the first one was obviously much better. I, I mean, I did not hate this movie, but I didn't love it. it was, I just kind of, I'll probably never watch it again. Yeah, I don't think Fair. I'll ever see it again either. Yeah. All right, gentlemen. So, what's on tap for next oh, week? <laughs> I'm very excited because next week, and then our continual uh, celebration of Halloween all month. What are we calling it? Shocktober? Spook- we keep Spooktober, changing it. Spooktober. I don't know. Someone called it Horrortober. Ooh, that doesn't. I sound like good. that. Yeah, I know. It was like someone was trying to combine horror and October, and it came out as Horrortober. And then we were talking about slots to fill, and it got really bad. <laughs> okay, we'll call it Hocktober then. Um, Hocktober. <laughs> for, for, for the next week, we're doing Dawn, Dawn of the Dead, 1978, my favorite horror movie, and uh, Dawn of the Dead 2004, the Zack Snyder remake, uh, and James Gunn. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that too. I've never seen the first Def- one. Oh, you are in for a treat. I already know what's going to happen with Pat in the first one. <laughs> He's going to hate yep, it. He's <laughs> going to hate it. I guarantee it. I would put money. If I owned any money, I would put money. On that he, that he, he's going to hate it. And he's going to love the. He's going to love the remake. All right. Well, and uh, we should be rejoined by Mike uh, this time next week, uh, assuming that the killer didn't actually get him. Uh, he got his hope but, quota, uh, quota done. So Yes. Uh, you can find us, as always, on the Musings of a Geek Network at www.musingsofageek.com. You can find us at our home on the web at 40go14.com or on Facebook by searching for 40go14. You can also listen to us every Saturday at noon on Geek Life Radio. And our archives are hosted, as always, iTunes, Blueberry, Stitcher, and TalkShoe. And if you have the intestinal fortitude to give us a call leave us a voicemail you can call us at 708 now wrap 708-669-9727 leave us a voicemail where you will be featured on our episode and we do promise if you leave us a voicemail with a sampling of any of our bumpers mike will cut a new one for you featuring you listen up that's nice yep. and you can uh email us at 40go14 at gmail.com or tweet us on twitter at 40go14 i think that's so i think that's gonna yeah, it's going to wrap it up for this week. I'm Josh, and I'm signing out. All right, and I'm Patrick. I'm Joel. Have a good night, everybody. Thanks for listening. They're all going to laugh at you. You are now leading the world of Musings of a Geek Podcast Network. Stay geeky, my friends. Sacrifice. Hmm. Holy crap, you just made me poop.